The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Today's question um, just kind of moves me to tremble a little. It's not an easy one to tackle. It's probably going to take us the next two or three weeks. Here's how it was originally presented. The question was this, from one of my daughters. Why did God let sin into the world at the beginning? Now I want to broaden it out beyond sin to all evil. Here's my question. Is God less glorious because... He ordained that evil be. So I'm going to talk about evil and its relationship to God. As Christians, we do not hold to a dualism wherein there is an eternal being who is good and an eternal being who is evil. No, Satan is created. He is underneath the sovereignty of the living God. He's like a dog on a leash. He can only go where God lets him go. And I want to talk about the relationship of evil to God. And it's nothing that we should take lightly. Because God is all good all the time. And yet He has ordained a world where evil exists. Where evil, in the way that God created the world, is indeed necessary. Natural evils like death, disease, and destruction, and moral evils, sin, the most horrific that we can imagine. In a world that God has made and that He is upholding by the word of His power, moment by moment. Is God less glorious because He ordained that evil be? So, that question was framed by Pastor John, putting it in those words. I had it in different words, and then I thought, he says more with less than my lots of words said. So, I've, just, I've, I've borrowed his statement It's from an appendix in the back of Desiring God that they no longer publish in the book. So the last time it was published was in the 2003 edition. It's not in the 2011 edition. But you can still find it on their website. Is God less glorious because He ordained that evil be? Eleven years I read this. Eleven years ago, I read this for the first time. And... It made its way into a class on biblical worldview that I was teaching. And 
Now what you're getting is 11 years of personal growth and encounter with a very big God and how it now will come out in the next two or three weeks. God is all good and God hates evil. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you, Psalm 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. That is who our God is. He is good. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. So as we wrestle with how is it that that evil, which is horrific, don't blur it out. God works all things for good, but that does not mean that all things are good. Hear that. No, there is real evil that is going to be put down completely in the end. Jesus came in order to reconcile all things to God because at the fall, things got corrupted. There is real corruption. We have to be willing to call it corruption. Sin infects and affects everything in our world. And it's brought with us both natural disaster, like cancer, and car accidents, and massive sin. God is all-powerful and can stop evil. Hear that. God is all-good and hates evil, and God is all-powerful, and that means He can stop evil. So why do we have any? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? No. He can stop it at any moment. We resist, our hearts can resist the work of the Spirit until God says, your resistance will be no more. And then He overcomes our resistance and we get saved. We stay dead in our transgressions and sins until the living God shows up and says, Lazarus, come forth. And we come forth. We can't stop it. He can overcome evil whenever He chooses. But He has chosen not to in many, many situations. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, says Job. Says Job. With man, it's impossible. But with God... All things are possible, says Jesus. All things. Is God all-powerful? Yes, He is. Can He stop evil? Yes, He can. So why does He ordain that evil be? I say ordain. Why? Because God makes everything. That's what the Bible teaches. He makes everything. Moment. By moment, speaking it. If he stops speaking, we stop existing. Everything being upheld by the word of his power. And in the midst of that, evil. 
There's a mystery to it all. Here's Paul. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Oh, the depth. I keep digging. I keep digging. And I'm not reaching the bottom of it. The riches, the wisdom, the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. There's a mystery about everything that God does. We cannot get our hands around it all. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Not me. Who's given a gift to Him that He should be replayed? God owes me nothing. Every every step of every day, I just go deeper in debt, and I can't get out of it. For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory. I want to say, we as Christians have to affirm, from Him are all things. We need a framework in our mind that doesn't think that all of a sudden God has, when suffering hits us, that all of a sudden He's fumbling up in heaven trying to figure things out. He was on the throne before the cancer struck. And He is on the throne today. And because of that, though there's a mystery, why God? Why our Son? Why this heart? There is mystery Our hope is in the fact that He is on the throne and nothing is catching Him off guard. We need that hope. Don't let your God be small. The God of the Bible is not small. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, Old Testament. But in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son. Tell me about Him. Well, He is the He was appointed heir of all things. Everything, everything in this world, ultimately, His inheritance. Through Him... Everything that exists was created. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He is upholding all things by the word of His power. That's how big Christ is. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. All things upheld moment by moment. This This is amazing. For by Jesus all things exist. Things in heaven and things on earth. The visible and, notice, the invisible. By Jesus the invisible exists. Unpack that, Paul. Thrones, dominions, rulers... Authorities, they exist through Jesus, they exist for Jesus. 
In Papua New Guinea, I imagine you've encountered glimpses of the spirit world that are terrifying, that are so controlling of people, they live like demons. By Jesus, the invisible were created. Notice what we're talking about here. We're talking about the very things that we wrestle against. Not against flesh and blood, but against these very things. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In chapter 1 of Colossians, Jesus is the creator of all invisible things. And then in chapter 2, he's the very, these are the very things that he disarms at the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He created them in order to show his supremacy over them. That there is evil in this world so that God might show he's over, he can overcome it through Jesus. All things created by him. Let's keep filling out the verses. And he is before all things. In him all things hold together. All things knit together. Working out God's purposes. Including Satan. He's the head. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why? That in everything... He might be preeminent. That's what God is working for from beginning of time to the end of time in order to show that Jesus is preeminent over all things, including over natural evil and moral evil. That He can show His power to destroy it. And were there not evil in this world, we would never get that glimpse of the power and the magnificence of our Christ. Consider, in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him, why? To reconcile all things to Himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Over the next couple weeks, three, two or three, what we're going to see is an amazing portrait of God's sovereignty. In order that you and I might actually see Him in His fullness. He wants you to experience His bigness. In order that you can experience hope. He wants you to feel your unworthiness. In order that you might understand love, mercy. He wants you to see how necessary the cross was so that we could experience His justice in a way that He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because the righteous one suffers in our stead. But were there not suffering to be overcome, sins to be saved from, 
sins to be judged, we wouldn't understand our God this way. Is God less glorious because He ordained that evil be? Where I'm taking us is to say, no, He's actually more glorious before our eyes. We will see more of Him and experience deeper levels of His love in the midst of our humility, in the midst of our brokenness. All of a sudden, we're put in a context where we see our desperate need for help, and He will prove Himself a helper. He is glorified. We are satisfied in this context where He ordains that evil be. So let's just walk through. We're talking about death, disease, destruction. God's relation to natural evil. And I just, I just want to walk us through how the Bible talks about God's relationship to these things. This week, natural evil. Next week, moral evil. And God hates. I will, I, God hates all of it. And He will put an end to all of it. All natural evil done away with. All moral evil done away with. A God who is always good, all the time. A God who is is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Trying to wrestle, how do we put this together? That's what I'm hoping the next three weeks will do. Life and death. Let's consider first Job. Job was a righteous man, blameless in all of his ways. Job walked with God. The narrator tells us that was true. Job declares it to be true. He doesn't say he was perfect. He does declare himself forgiven. And then God himself, in chapter 1, affirms Job's integrity. He reaffirms it in chapter 2. Satan says, does Job fear you for nothing? He fears you because life is well with him. He has health. He has a home. He's got a family. Everything's flourishing. That's why he's happy. He trusts you because life's good. God says, okay. And remember, Job never gets this inside scoop. At no point in the story are we told he sees what we get to see in chapter 1 and 2. This is a book about why do righteous people suffer, but it never answers for Job. Why me? Why this hard? Why this long? The answer comes at a more cosmic level. In order to prove to Satan that God is worth fearing, Simply because of who he is, not because of what he gives or takes away. And Job gets it. Look at how he talks. He loses his ten children. That's the heavy thing. He loses all of his house. He loses all of his farm animals. But it's his ten kids. God says, okay, you can have Job. Just Don't do anything to his own life. And Satan takes his kids.
But when Job experiences the loss, he says, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. Yahweh gave. And Yahweh took away. That's that's how he's thinking. That's his worldview. How are we supposed to respond to that? Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what Job says. Period. Quotation mark. In all these things, Job did not sin with his lips. The inspired narrator of our book says Job was not wrong in attributing to Yahweh the ultimate cause. In the very next chapter, after Satan goes back up into the presence of God on the throne, and God says again, have you considered my servant Job? He says, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Job was the kind of man, like in John chapter 9, where the disciples said, who sinned? Him or his parents, because he was born blind? And Jesus says, no, neither one. So too, Job, for no reason, for no human reason, this is not punishment. This is not punishment. There's something greater at work. If he can do no evil, and evil cannot dwell with him, what's Satan doing there, and what's he talking to Satan for? I think what's at stake when Habakkuk says those words, he's talking about there's different levels to God's working. He's in charge of all things, and yet this is a world where evil exists. But that at the core of his being, he is not evil, nor is he the doer of any wicked thing. And yet, two weeks from now, I'm going to try to unpack how I think Scripture understands the relationship, and with the help of Jonathan Edwards give clarity, at least in the very best way I can, how God can be in charge of all things. Ordaining, intending, I don't care what word we use. Yes, He knows, but it's much more than that. We're going to see this week, with respect to natural evil, I mean right here, the Lord gave and the Lord took away. In all these things, Job did not sin with his lips. That you, God cannot be the doer of any wicked thing, and yet He can still stand in the presence of evil. And indeed, evil can be an agent in His hand. So, at His core, He is not wicked in any way. He is light. And indeed, He's passionate for that light to burn as brightly as possible. And at least the way Scripture unpacks it. And by that I mean he could have potentially done it a different way if he had chosen, but this is the way he chose to do it, that light would be proven to be the brightest only in the wake and in the contrast with deep, deep darkness. But at his core, there is no wickedness in him.
See now that I, even I am He, says God. There is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. God will not allow ultimate causation of someone's death or of someone's life to be given to anyone other than himself. I do it. Here's Hannah. The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. I don't push that aside. I think we're hearing here true orthodox doctrine that you and I need to hold on to in order to make sense of this world, in order to have actual hope in the midst of tragedy. There's mystery, but there is certainty. Mystery in that I don't understand why it's happening to this person like this. But there is certainty that God is in charge and that for all in Christ, He is for them and not against them. I need that kind of bedrock, solid confidence. When miscarriage happens, when a son that I thought was mine gets ripped away from my life, I need it. You need it. You do not know what tomorrow will bring, says James. You're but a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wills, I will live or do this or that. If He wills it, I will live. And we don't know what tomorrow holds. That's the picture of Scripture with respect to life and death. Here's my conclusion. To have life is a gift. To lose it is not an injustice in God. Never. If life is a gift, then His timing with respect to its end is not an injustice, whether He takes it at age 5 or at age 95. Next. Cancer. What do we do here? Who's made man's mouth? Who makes him mute? Or deaf? Or seeing? Or blind? Is it not I, Moses? These things are not happening by chance, Moses. I'm in charge of it all. And a book like Exodus goes out of its way to say every natural reality is controlled by the living God. That water, I can make it blood. The sunlight, I can make it dark. I can bring hail and mites and frogs at my will. That's how big our God is. Okay, Satan, you can go back. I'll even let you touch Job this time. But you can't take away his life. He's on the leash. The wildness, the terror can only go as far as God lets it go. 
His body is filled with sores. Satan struck him with loathsome sores. That's what the text says. That is true. Satan is real. Evil spirits are real. Demons exist behind every idol that draws away our hearts, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 10. Just curse God and die, says Job's wife. Job's response, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Question mark? Quotation marks? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Hear that. Job is not wrong in attributing ultimate causality to God. But he is also not hopeless. His sickness does not leave him feeling abandoned. His trust in God is absolutely certain. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How can we do that? How can we maintain such a deep conviction of the bigness of God? And an absolute confidence that He is not against me in this moment, though I don't understand what's going on. May God help us in all these things. Job did not sin with his lips. To keep me from exalting myself, there was given me, Paul says, a thorn in my flesh. Now, this may not be a sickness. In Galatians chapter 5, we're told that he had a weepy eye, Paul. And the people in Galatia could have been very bothered by it. That there was some contortion, some facial change in Paul's life that made him hard to look at as a teacher. Now, He could be referring to that. It's also possible, though, that the thorn in the flesh is referring to persecutors. I I don't know. But I want you to see something. We see it a number of times, as in 2 Samuel 24, when the text says, Yahweh incited David. Yahweh's anger burned against Israel, and the Lord incited David to take the census. And then... Nine verses later, David is on his knees saying, I've sinned. We'll talk about that next week. But then in Chronicles, instead of saying the Lord incited David to take the census, it says Satan incited David to take the census. And both are true. Here, what we see is, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. So there's the initial purpose. Satan comes to torment. Satan comes to torment. Ultimate purpose? To keep me from exalting myself. That's what Satan wants. He doesn't want any of us to be conceited. He wants to just get away all of our self-reliance and nurture in us God-dependence, right? That's what Satan wants. No, that's not what Satan wants. So Paul has a worldview 
wherein his God is massively big, Satan still exists, Satan is working evil, and God is working something greater than evil. And Satan is actually the instrument through which he is being kept from being conceited. In the midst of his suffering, he prays three times, God, take it away, and God chooses not to, so that in his weakness, he might find strength that he could find nowhere else. So that in his clay potness, he might experience a power that comes from God and not from himself. Satan is there, and he is real, but he is never Never supreme. Behind all disease and disability, who made man's mouth, Moses? Who makes him dumb and deaf and seeing and blind? Is it not I? Is it not I? Behind all disease and disability is the ultimate will of God. While Satan is probably always involved, his power is not decisive. He cannot act without God's permission. Natural disasters. He bestows rain on the earth. He sends water upon the countryside. Who does? The Lord. He makes wind his messengers, a flaming fire his ministers. He summoned a famine on the land and he broke all supply of bread. God is the subject of all of these statements. He makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouse. The psalmist here at the end of the Psalter is just, he's not talking about specific instances. He's just, he's meditating on the bigness of God's control over all creation. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. Fire, hail, snow, mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. That's our God. I have a book at home. When I first saw it, I just told Therese, I have, please, get me this book. She got it for two cents on um, Amazon. It's awesome. Five dollar shipping, two cents. <laughs> it was a book, it is a book, loaded with, I, I don't know, 2,000 pictures of snowflakes. They were taken by the first guy who discovered that every snowflake is different. He built an amazing camera, and in the early 1900s, he began to photograph snowflakes. And the whole book, he's cataloged them based on their different shapes, but there is no one that's the same. And all the book is, is page after page after page after page of these snowflakes in black and white. It's unbelievable that every one of them was birthed out of the Word of God. Every one different. Every one displaying beauty. And now, after who knows how long the earth is? Go back and listen to my lectures. After all those years, God allows someone to create a camera that can actually take pictures of a snowflake without it melting. All the pictures of him taking pictures of snowflakes were done outside. 
It's amazing. Isaac Watts said, There is not a plant or a flower below, but makes your glories known, and clouds arise and tempests blow by order from your throne. Every bit of the natural forces in this world are created by our God. Every one, every wave, tsunami, thunderstorm. Just yesterday, my daughter was reflecting, Mary Jane, just thinking about when we first moved here, Teresa thought, whew, I mean, she had two big fears in her life, snakes and tornadoes. And God moved us to, I I laugh thinking about the snakes, but God moved us to Kentucky, and we got to, it seemed like every Wednesday night at clockwork, six o'clock was tornado time, and the sirens would go off, and we'd have to run to our neighbor's house, down into their basement, and it just became a pattern. But the fear slowly got pushed down, okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. But now God calls us in 2005 to Minneapolis out of the tornado zone. And no joke, the very first night, we're down in the basement of Carla and uh, Carol and Daryl. We're at Carl and Daryl's house down in their basement because the sirens are all going off for the tornado. And then in our first year here, this massive this massive windstorm comes through, and when we moved in, there was a beautiful park next to our house that was just loaded with trees. And by the end of our first year, almost every tree was gone. And she was reflecting on what it was like to go outside. That's only a block from our house, and this, um, what's it called when a wall cloud? The wall cloud went through and just leveled. Bam, bam, bam. Big, giant trees. Thank you. All the calamities of wind and rain and flood and storm. Every raindrop orchestrated by the hand of our God. He's that big. And because of that, we don't need to fear. Hear that? He's that big. Because of that, knowing that with all that power... He could be for us in Christ. We don't need to fear. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Hear that. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider... God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be done after him. There's a mystery. I form light. I create darkness. I make well-being. And I create calamity, says the Lord. I am the Lord who does all these things. Does disaster come upon a city unless I declare it? No. No. So here's my big picture. All natural evils ultimately derive from the decree of God and fit into His ultimate purpose. He's not a random God. 
Nothing is operating outside of his control. Moment by moment, he is speaking all things purposefully. So what's the natural question here? What's the natural question? What's the ultimate purpose? And I'm going to stretch this out over three weeks, but I am going to answer a partial purpose. Now, growing out of our church, what would we say automatically? Why does God do what He does? Okay, it must have something to do with His glory in order to display more, to preserve more, a greater picture of His weightiness of His worth, of who He is. Yes, it must have something to do with that. And I'm just wanting to get inside of it a little bit more. So, the comment was that God, God was willing to enter into a test of his worth with Satan. And he was willing to do it with one of his chosen ones. God had Job so tight that he knew that he could display his worth to Job in such a great way that Job's faith would not waver. And so God was willing to to send his chosen child into the fire without giving clarity to his chosen child why in order that he might ultimately put on display to all the cosmic powers his keeping love and his worth through the faith of Job through the fear of Job does Job fear you for nothing no But he does fear me, not because of what he has, but because of who I am. So the question is, if Satan is not a thug for hire, working out evil purposes of God, because God is all good all the time, then is Satan somehow extremely stupid to not know what God is doing? And that is a, um, that's a tricky question. And I, I wonder if with progressive revelation, if Satan has learned more in time. But there seems to be a pattern. Right. And, and Satan, uh, I mean the demons know God and shudder. James Chapter 2. 2. And what it, it seems to me is, is there's at least possible that we have a, a development over time um, where Satan's purposes just keep getting thwarted. He's learning the pattern. And yet something in him is unwilling to surrender... And the anger grows. Why are these 
even through the cross, Wiley Coyote, potentially, um, even through the cross to where he is so seething, so angry, yet I think he knows his end is sure. And yet he also, and because of that, he knows he's small, and yet there's, and, and there's a limit to his jurisdiction. The prince of this world is what he's called. And so he's working, and he's trying to blind as many as he can, all the while, uh, I mean, 1 Peter chapter 2, they did not believe as they were destined to do. 1 Peter 2.8, that, that massive picture of God's sovereignty. And so, trying to figure out, I mean, God, that this is part of the mystery, I think. Part of the, I can't get my hands fully around this. No, you don't have a dualism. So, Satan has to remain small. We don't see any specific text, but... The images in Scripture that are lifted up as pictures of the serpent's work. Pharaoh is a picture of the serpent. God hardens his heart. Sihon is a picture of the serpent. It says explicitly, God hardens his heart. And so there's that. um, There's something there, and how does that relate to, to the devil? What I'm wanting us to see is that he is not outside of God's control, that somehow God, in his absolute sovereignty and absolute goodness, has ordained a world where this kind of evil is operative. And the question is, why? Now, we're going to unpack this further, but if I know they're done over there, if you can give me three more minutes, I think it will be meaningful. How does God's glory relate to His love for us? And how does this work itself out? We can say it's all for God's glory, but, but, but practically, what does this mean for me when it's my son? I just want to answer this question just from the book of Ecclesiastes, which was one of the gifts of God in my life carrying us through one of the deepest seasons of suffering that we've ever experienced. I just want to hit a handful of verses. Number one, as you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. That's a big, big God theology from the preacher. Who makes everything. Then I saw all the work of God. That's not some things, that's everything. I'm looking at it all. That man cannot find out the work that he has done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. God's ways are higher than our ways. In everything. We might have a grasp of some things, but there's eight zillion things that he's doing with every single event that we have no clue of. Consider the work of God. Who makes everything? Who can make straight what He has made crooked? This is a cursed and broken world and we can't fix it. We're part of the problem. We're not part of the solution. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? 
In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other, and yet He does so in a way that we have no clue what's coming next. So the question is, why does God do it this way? Why does He leave us in this mysterious state? Why does He work everything out the way that He does so that man is left not knowing, wondering? Look at this verse. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever, unchanging. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing taken away from it. God has done it. Hear this. Here's the revealed will. It doesn't work out this way in everyone's life. But it is the revealed purpose for why God does everything He does. The good and the bad in a way that we can't understand it. Why does He do it that way? Why does He leave us so helpless? So that people may fear before Him. The fear of God is generated under a vision of a big God who is beyond our control. And fear is a necessary element in order to enjoy relationship with this God. Because it keeps us in the right spot. Us, the needy, He, the giver. It keeps us where we need to be. Notice chapter 8. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, sinners multiplying in their way on this earth, in this age, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. God works His system, including the problems in this world, in order to generate fear in the lives of people, because it's only those who fear Him that will enjoy long life beyond. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will He prolong His days like a shadow, because He does not fear before God. Can you, can you hear that? What does God want from me? He just wants you to fear Him. And by fear, not a fear of terror, but a deep-seated awe, a disposition of the heart that is proper in an orientation to His character. A sustained, you are God and I am not, but I will not let you go because I know you won't let me go. To fear Him. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Hear that. Why would God be putting me through this? Because He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And He's wanting you to be humble. He's putting you in a context where you can receive His love. He will be made great as the helper, and you will be the helped. He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And in the proper time, He will lift you up, casting all your anxieties upon Him. Why? Not because He is just seated on the throne, distant from us, caring little. No, He cares. He cares for you. He cares for you. And He wants you to fear Him. 
because he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He creates a world where suffering exists. It doesn't make him less glorious. It makes him more glorious because it puts us in a context where we can recognize how desperately needy we are for that kind of strength. He holds every tomorrow. Don't run from this God. You need this kind of a big God. A God that we can't explain. A God that we can't understand. He is not a tame lion. But He is good. And through Jesus, He is for us 100%. Father, go before us now. You cause us to tremble. We want to work out our salvation with fear, with trembling, knowing that it is God, You, who work in us both to will and to work for Your good pleasure. So work out Your good pleasure in us. Work Your fear into us. We want a proper disposition of our heart toward your character. And we know that your character is good. We don't understand all that's going on, but we thank you that you are stronger than Satan. Greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And lo, you are with us always, even to the end of the age. So we want to tap into that. My sheep hear my voice. They know me. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We are in your hands, Father. You will make an everlasting covenant with us so that that you will not turn from us. You will put the fear of you in our hearts so that we will not turn from you. We hold on to that promise. We need that kind of help. We are weak. You are strong. So uphold our fragile hearts. Make much of you and let us experience your love in fresh ways. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.